Hello and welcome to Vision of Zion. The date today is May the 5th, 2023. I have on the phone with me my special guest and friend, Sean White. How are you doing, Sean? Good. Thank you for having me, Craig. You bet. For the benefit of our listeners, this is our second trial run on this podcast today. I made a rookie mistake. I got a little complacent because the last few recordings have gone so well that I didn't do a sound check before. And when I played it back, Sean, who's remote, sounded great. And me, who has supposed, <laughs> I'm supposed to have all this fancy equipment here, looks like I was talking out of a paper bag. It, it was really bad. So we have to do it again, but um, we're grateful for the opportunity. And uh, maybe we'll have a little more polished presentation today than when we did it earlier this morning when our voices were still croaking. I guess we're at the end of the day now, Sean. So hopefully our voices will hold up. Yeah. <laughs> Today, we are going to cover Isaiah chapter 7, and then we have also chapter 8 ready to go. And I hope I can ask the same types of questions in this actual podcast that will be published, as opposed to uh, like the questions I asked uh, this morning. But I do want to point out that one thing did happen that was really uh, cool today is that I we decided that Sean's notes on these chapters needed to be fully uh, published or available to people. The notes I've been putting up for each podcast show notes is only 4,000 letters or characters, including the hidden ones. So I, I've been having to go through all these lengthy notes that Sean has prepared, and I've had to condense them down to what I can fit in, 4,000 characters. So I did secure a website name. I'll reveal it hmm, probably the next podcast so that it doesn't look like it's just under construction right now. But all of these notes in their complete and final version will be available at the end of every podcast from now on for downloading. And we'll have a lot of other features to interact with us. And hopefully you can share this message or these messages if you like them with other like-minded people or people who may need something like this to help their lives and help prepare. So Isaiah chapter seven, let's just get into it here. This is the head, head note or summary that Sean provided to me today. This chapter is a warning to the leaders of what is about to happen. These things happen over a one-year period of time after the midpoint of the tribulation. Verse one, and I will point out to everybody that you might want to read along uh, with your scriptures, uh, any version you want, the NIV, the King James Version. We're reading from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and there's a lot of names and places. Just be prepared to help. We're going to help you slog through these names, and uh, it's it's going to be a little overwhelming, but I promise you that the interpretations that Sean has uh, obtained are very, very beneficial. All right, here we go. First one. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Isaiah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. Ahaz was one of the most wicked kings of Judah. Rezin and Pekah came to Ahaz 
in Judah and to force Ahaz to form an alliance with them against the king of Assyria. Today, we can see similarities in America pushing other countries to join us to sanction Russia right now. Well, this is a day of political <clears throat> intrigue, and it is a day of alliance forming. And we see alliances forming in ways that we have never uh, experienced before, but appear to be predicted in scripture or foretold. Verse two, David's house was told, quote, Syria is allied with Ephraim. Close quote, his heart trembled and the heart of his people trembled as the trees of the forest tremble with the wind. When the posterity of King David, who was led by Ahaz, found out that Aram was misleading them, the people were shaken and very troubled. Today, what if Europe found out the real reason for the war in Ukraine was to collapse Europe's economy and establish a one-world government? Would this cause us to tremble? Would it cause the people in Europe to tremble because they didn't realize what the underlying factors were? So we can kind of see here, uh, put ourselves in their shoes and try to understand what it meant to tremble or understand what they were going through. Verses 3 through 9. Then Yahweh said to Isaiah, quote, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the fuller's field. Tell him, quote, Be careful and keep calm. Don't be afraid. Neither let your heart be faint because of these two tails of smoking torches for the fierce anger of Rezin and Assyria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, quote, let's go up against Judah and tear it apart, and let's divide it among ourselves and set up a king within it, even the son of Tabeel, close quote. This is what the Lord Yahweh says, quote, it shall not stand, neither shall it happen, close quote. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin or Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim shall be broken in pieces, so that it shall not be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Close quote. I know this is a big chunk, but God is instructing Isaiah and his son to go out and meet Ahaz. Now, Isaiah wasn't able to publicly prophesy at this time. And his son's name, Shir Jashib, meant a remnant shall escape or return. So he's using this fake son's name to prophesy, to encode that only a remnant shall escape or return. So Isaiah went to the Gihon Spring, the place where Davidic kings are anointed, very special place, and gave a warning to King Ahaz, reminding him of the Davidic covenant and if Ahaz kept the terms of the Davidic covenant, God would protect him. And if he didn't, only a remnant of his people would remain. Isaiah is to tell Ahaz to be calm and unafraid as he goes before Rezin and Aram, in spite of the fact that Rezin is upset with him and Aram has plotted against him. They sought to replace Ahaz with the king of Assyria's son, Isaiah tells Ahaz that the Ephraimites' nation will be destroyed 
within 65 years. Now, many say that this was a mistranslation, but as I look at it, well, we could see this warning happening to us in our land. Now, God also tells Ahaz, do not believe the words. God said to Ahaz, you will not believe these words because you are not loyal to the Davidic covenants. It's taken. So today, this would be like one of our prophets approaching the president of the United States and reminding him that we on this promised land must serve God or be wiped off the face of this land. If we don't adhere to this covenant, only a remnant of the people will remain on this land. And we you know, look at this today, and that seems quite impossible in this day and age to approach our leaders, and they probably want to kill them for somebody for telling them, yeah, you're going to be wiped off this land if you don't follow the covenants that we are to serve God here in this nation at this time. It's just so we're so far removed. But in our day, Europe could awaken to the lies that Biden has propagated and conspire with China to overtake America or replace our president. That could we could easily see that happening because things are just not good with our president right now, and he doesn't seem to make smart decisions. Now we know the WHO, the WHO organization is conspiring to take away our sovereignty and replace our leaders with people that are loyal to them. Ping, currently the leader of China, keeps his family very hidden. None of Xi's family, including his wife, actually live in China. We see this. <clears throat> now, I look back and see that probably in 1959, 65, about 65 years ago, that David O. McKay could have given a warning or one of the apostles to Dwight D. Eisenhower. And I believe some Jewish rabbi or something warned David Ben-Gurion during this time period. We see that the pattern of what Ahaz went through with these other leaders and them conspiring to take over his country and his lands and people could definitely happen to us with the conspiring to take over America. We see that uh, China has bought up a third of all the farmland in the United States. And I th think it's almost all the third of the forests that are uh, we can harvest trees from and things. They own nine out of 10 seed companies. Um, just to mention a few big ones, it's, it's astonishing when we really look at it. And then the push to still continue to buy more land here by China within here. And we know that leaders are embedded within our government that are loyal. We know that actors, movie stars, and athletes are all saying things and paid off by China to say things. Even singers, I watched a deal on Taylor Swift today and how that her contract demands that she say certain things. Um, we're in a bad shape as far as agency. And just like them, they were losing their agency because of wickedness and wicked leaders. All right, let's go to verses 10 through 12. <clears throat> Yahweh spoke again to Ahaz saying, quote, ask a sign of Yahweh your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, quote, I won't ask. I won't tempt Yahweh, close quote. God was addressing Ahaz, saying, 
Ask me for a sign so that you will know the words I'm saying are true. Ahaz, a descendant of King David, was probably thinking about the words in Deuteronomy 6.16. Ye shall not tempt the Lord your God as ye are tempted, as ye tempted him in Massa, and is afraid to ask God for a sign for fear he'll be punished. All right, let's go to verses 13 through 15. He said, quote, Listen now, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of man that you will try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord Yahweh himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will, will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat butter and honey when he knows to refuse the evil and choose the good. This was a very hard verse for me to understand. It took me a long time and some fasting and praying to try to feel good about this verse. Here God has shifted from addressing Ahaz to the house of David, whom Ahaz sits over and is responsible for. The house of David was responsible for administering the priesthood ordinances in the Lord's temple. They also taught God's word to the people. They were of the tribe of Aaron and had the rightful stewardship to take care of these things. Now, King Ahaz, who was of the house of David, was a wicked leader, as evidenced in Second Chronicles 28. Ahaz had the responsibility to lead the house of Israel, yet he made idols for Baal. Ahaz made offerings to these idols, even in the holy temple of God. Needless to say, this angered God. At one point, he actually took these idols that he made, cast out the altars in the temple, and replaced them with idols of Baal. I mean, I can't imagine how this must have angered God. Many say the sign of Emmanuel was filled in Matthew 1, 22-23. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted as God is with us. This is not the sign of the prophecy being fulfilled, as Jesus was born 700 years after this prophecy was given to Ahaz. God was giving a sign to Ahaz as a witness that the prophecy was to be fulfilled, so it had to be something that Ahaz could see to know that God's word was being fulfilled. Something in his so, lifetime. Yes. So as we refer back to verse 3, at this time, to understand what is meant when he says Emmanuel, in verse 3, Isaiah wasn't able to publicly prophesy, so he used the name Shir Shashub, which meant a remnant shall escape or return. Now in verse 14, Isaiah is using the name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So King Ahaz's wife was Abiah, A-B-I-J-H, also known as Abby in the scriptures, 2 Kings 18.2 and 2 Chronicles 29.1 refer to her as a very righteous woman. Her father was the prophet Zechariah, who wrote the book of Zechariah and was the 11th of the 12 minor prophets in the Bible. So I'm sure that Abby was a very virtuous woman when she married King Ahaz. 
So here's the daughter of a prophet marrying the leader of the kingdom, the rightful priesthood holder, to direct everything, and yet he turned out to be wicked. But this must have been quite a holy matrimony uh, to start with. So she conceived a son whose name was Hezekiah. Now the name Hezekiah comes from the verb to be haski, which means to be strong, and the second part, Yaha, which is the shortened name of the Lord. So we get the shortened name of the Lord to be strong. So God is strong with us. And so with Emmanuel being God is with us, I see this as completing the prophecy for Ahaz to be fulfilled with the birth of his son. Now, interestingly enough, Ahaz got so wicked that um, he offered one of his sons to the god Moloch, and he was burned. He was about to do that with Hezekiah, but Abby saved him from being sacrificed to the gods there. This, to me, parallels the story of Abraham and the struggles mm. that Abraham had. It just is so interesting to me to see these cycles. Hezekiah was a wonderful king when he became king at about 25 years old, and he tried to restore righteousness to the kingdom, but it was through his mother's teachings and what a, a beautiful woman she was to embed those and instill those within him to try to restore the kingdom. Mm. We might see this today as you know, Obama, he was not a very righteous person, and he set up many laws that caused our to break down. And then we have Trump as a semi-righteous person being put in and uh, have a little bit of a reprieve. And now we seem to have lost our reprieve in Biden as more wickedness comes about and things are taken away from us. Okay. Um, let me interject a comment here. So just to summarize, Yahweh tells Ahaz, I want you to ask for a sign, probably to that he would know that uh, Yahweh was the one talking to him. He backs off and says, I won't do it. So the Lord says, okay, well, then I'm going to give you a sign. But then he speaks to the whole house of David about this uh, child being born. And I want to point out the word virgin. If you look in the Hebrew, first of all, the word virgin in Hebrew is Alma, A-L-M-A. And a virgin refers to a young woman. It doesn't mean it's an immaculate conception, this Hezekiah, but it means that the woman is uh, physically mature enough to bear children and is therefore a young woman so th that could fit with this Hezekiah and does fit the time frame if you look at the totality of the verses. But it's also cited by Matthew, and so there might be some dual meaning here, right? Maybe even a meaning in triplicate, because we have a similar fact pattern at the time of Jesus, which is what you have an apostate religion who was strayed from the Lord. At best, they have put on so many new laws that it's in many respects damaged the spirit of the law and 
we see that evident when the Savior is performing miracles. He's healing people. He's raising people from the dead. And what are they what are they thinking about? Hey, why was that done on the Sabbath day? Hey, you shouldn't walk through that field because you're knocking kernels off, and therefore you're working on the Sabbath. So they were so focused on the letter of the law, and not just the letter of the law, but the interpretation over centuries that they had lost the spirit of the law. So there was an apostasy, therefore. And so I do see some parallels, I hope you do too, or think you do, between um, Ahaz in his day having Hezekiah born to restore righteousness and the Savior in his time frame following the same pattern. We're going to see in chapter 8 that we're coming up on where Isaiah's wife, the prophetess, has a child. And that is a sign, and it's a marker too. So childbirth and things are very much a sign during this time. And I I have seen and I can't explain further, but we're going to, if we watch closely, listen to our Heavenly Father, we'll see some of these signs develop before us and they will be beautiful. The Heavenly Father will whisper to us, oh yes, this child marks the beginning of this prophecy or this thing, and we can be aware of those things. Well, thank you. I'm going to go back and summarize some of this chapter when we get through all the verses. I just thought I'd save it for the end this time and as we recap this chapter. But let's go on to verses 16 and 17. For before the child knows to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose kings you abhor shall be forsaken, and Yahweh will bring on you, on your people, and on your father's house, days that have not come from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Assyria. Now, Isaiah is referring back to verse 4, as he says, The land whose two kings you arbor shall be forsaken. The two kings are Rezin and Pekah, which is a son of Ramallah. Today, let's use Putin and Zai as an example of two kings that threaten Biden. This will help you see that I, what Isaiah is saying. Now, as we go on, when Ephraim departed from Judah... The house of Israel became divided. This can be seen in 1 Kings 11, 29-31, and 1 Kings 12, 19-21. At this time, King Solomon, King David's son, had risen to power and become the richest king over Israel. He also had acquired 700 wives and 300 concubines. Many of these wives worshipped other gods. They turned Solomon's heart away from the one true God of Israel. Now, these verses are a pattern for us today, as we look like at 1 Kings 11, 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart was turned away from the Lord. And the God of Israel had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he, sh but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded him. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the kingdom, but I will give you one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant, for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. 
Today, we can look at the time period of the 1960s through the 1980s. During these years, more people prayed than ever before on a daily basis. We knew good from evil. God was with us during these years. Then we strayed from the principles of righteousness to the point that God has now removed his hand of protection from the promised lands because we have broken our covenants. We can see comparisons to these scriptures as we look at the wicked policies Obama set up to take away power from Congress and the people using executive actions. We had a bit of a reprieve as Trump tried to restore the righteousness and the fundamental principles of the Constitution. Then Biden stepped in. We all recognize with his cognitive decline that he is not running the show, but because of the things Obama did, we have lost control of our government. We are primed for another country to walk in and take control. Now, for my NDE as I walked with the Savior, I saw that if enough people started praying daily to God that he would remove Biden, this would give us a little reprieve from the calamities to come on America. The bottom line is the pattern of what happened to Ahaz will happen to us. We are growing divided as a country, just as when the Ephraimites decided with other tribes to get out from under the rule of King Solomon. This is a pattern God warned Ahaz of. Ultimately, the king of Assyria took the Ephraimites and the other tribes captive and then led them northward. Now, interesting here because if we look back to Ken Peters' vision and mine too, um, we see very likely that the pattern will be that he will they will invade us and they will lead away captives. Now, and they do this to try to humble or quell the rebellion from within so they can have better control. Um, more than likely, they will offer them, let's say, a new house or new things in another country to start up a business or a farm or something, say, come get on this plane with us and let's go here and we promise you all these things to help you get started. You've been loyal to us and everything else, but when they land and they get in that country, they will be sorely mistaken. They will actually be the slave to the other country, one of the BRICS countries that have joined with them and they're up, rising up against us. And so they end up being slaves, just like the Israelites did when they were led out northward and entrapped. But we also need to remember that as they were led out in Second Esdras, that the springs of the river Euphrates dried up, and many of them escaped, and they walked another year and a half in their travels until God placed them in a land where nobody knew and hid them up because they were they had turned their hearts during this journey, turned their hearts to God, and that he protected them again. And I know we don't cover this second Esdras, but there are treasures within this. I mean, beautiful, plain treasures. It's really neat. And you can get, cons you know, some of the names might boggle you a little bit. But as you understand more of the Godhead and what's happening, you will see it's quite a treasure. Now the people in Russia, which northward of Israel and everything, they you cannot have a church up there without Michael in it. And they all, you know, we have a cross here, but they have Michael in theirs. 
Why do they have Michael? Because they believe that he was the one that led them northwards safely to hide from the others. And so they honor him, you know, like Joan of Arc, who was the angel that Joan of Arc referred to that guided her and everything. It was Michael, who was the one that helped Moses when they were wrestling for his body, Michael. Um, but who was the one that led the armies in heaven, Michael, who's the one that binds Lucifer and puts him in the deal. Who's, who's the warrior here, <laughs> you know, over things. It's mm. amazing. Let us go to verses 18 through 20. It will happen in that day that Yahweh will whistle for the fly that is in the uttermost parts of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. They shall come and shall all rest in the desolate valleys, in the clefts of the rocks, on all thorn hedges and on all pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired in the parts beyond the river, even with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it shall, cons it shall also consume the beard. So in this verse, the fly and the bee represent armies coming from afar. These armies, along with the king of Assyria, occupy both kingdoms. We will be able to see that in New Jerusalem and Old Jerusalem. God will allow them to shave all parts of the body. This symbolizes the loss of identity and brings the person down to slave level. So it's you're losing as a slave, you'd have no identity. You just do what the master says. And so this shaving is truly a loss of identity. Hmm. 21 and 22. It shall happen in that day that a man shall keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And it shall happen that because of the abundance of milk, which they shall give, he shall eat butter. For everyone will eat butter and honey that is left within the land. So God is saying to all of Israel, when will this happen? It'll happen at a time when the people of Israel and America have reached greater prosperity than they have ever known historically. Verses 23 and 24. It will happen in that day that every place where there were a thousand vines at a thousand silver shekels shall be for briars and thorns. People will go there with arrows and with bow, because all the land will be briars and thorns. So this will happen when the prosperity of these lands is failing, and they begin to fight among themselves that their prosperity is disappearing. You don't feel safe with your businesses. You don't feel safe on your farms. Um, we could actually see some of this happening on Texas border with the immigrants coming across and their fences. We're seeing this in San Francisco, Portland, Los Angeles, New York, Chicago. You don't feel safe in front of your homes and places, your businesses. You have to wade through tents and everything else and to go to your business and it's being overrun. Okay, now we're at the verse 25, the final verse. All the hills that were cultivated with the hoe, you shall not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but it shall be for the sending out of oxen and for the treading of sheep. This invasion will happen at a time when evilness concerns entire countries of America and Israel. 
when the people feel unsafe in their business dealings and they feel they must guard everything they are involved in. Okay. This, Go ahead, Sean, please. You know, this chapter is kind of heavy and, and downtrodden and everything, giving this warning. But as we end eight, we'll be also. But one thing we can look forward to in chapter nine is the setting aside of his people and uh, a place for his righteous that can hear his voice, that can or don't rely on others to hear him. And it's a beautiful thing. So I'd like to spend some time talking about what you've said mm -hmm. and maybe some of the process by which you are getting this information or understanding, if you don't mind. Oh, yeah. And I'd also like to maybe provide some commentary, but let's go over some general themes. What we're saying here is we have initially this political intrigue people forming alliances, in some cases with the wrong people. We have wicked rulers, and we're looking at monarchies of some type because, for example, if the head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is Ramaliah's son. So it's saying that Samaria controls Ephraim, which is, of course, the northern kingdom. But there's a son who is controlling Samaria. So it's not a government. It's a one individual, apparently. And the same with the other ones that it mentions. So Damascus, head of Syria's Damascus, head of Damascus resin. So these individuals have somehow consolidated power. So we have for political intrigue. We have alliances being formed. We have um, apparently dictatorships or monarchies, however you would like to whatever modern terminology you want to use. And then we have uh, judgment because of broken covenants. And the broken covenants lead to judgment, I believe, and ultimately invasion. This is exactly what happened in Israel or Ephraim. And years later, by the Assyrians, and then later by the Babylonians in Judah, the southern kingdom. Um, and then finally, we have invasion. And this extends to in our day, in that day, we've got the armies coming, both in the New Jerusalem and the Old Jerusalem, the new being in the Americas. So the Western Hemisphere is, is in trouble. And... Things begin during times of plenty, and then people don't feel safe as this unfolds. Is that a fairly good, broad summary of this chapter? It is, and we need to watch in the wording and things, but it always happens to America first and Israel second. Okay. And it's sad, but this pattern has proceeded throughout the Bible and throughout Israel's history has happened in the Book of Mormon. It's happened with other civilizations. It happened with the Jaredites. And when they started to break down their covenants and forgot about the God they serve and the promises they kept to keep this beautiful land, everything starts to fall apart and they fall into bondage. 
So we talked about this this morning when the recording went poorly. I like to kind of cover it a little quicker, maybe for for our listeners today. But it's my understanding that in your near-death experience, you uh, saw events unfold like on a computer screen or a big, I guess, a big screen. And just like we would a picture being worth a thousand words, it's hard to express in words all the things that you see. And then there are things that maybe that you missed or didn't draw attention to. And over the years, uh, the Savior has uh, helped you focus in on certain parts of what you've seen. And right. then it's, and then he's made you, either he's helped you understand what they mean through maybe telling you, I don't know, you can answer that question, or and or you are having to study these things out and you're finding scriptures that reaffirm the things that you saw. So as I left the council chamber after having life review and things and was had the meeting with uh, the Heavenly Mothers to try to tell me that I needed to come back for all the things that I might miss and might be involved in, they asked me to go with the Savior, which spent most of the night as we traveled through portals and saw past, present, and future events. And uh, there's so, so many scenes. If you can imagine, they say five minutes in heaven, you would know more than all the books written about our Heavenly Father and understand the nature of him more. It's just five minutes. And that is absolutely true. But, you know, here I am. I'm spending uh, about five hours just traveling with the Savior, seeing these things. So it's huge. And uh, so many times with us near-death experiences, it's all in pictures. And many times these pictures in our minds, you know, like if you look at something on your wall you're try and try to describe what I'm seeing to someone else, you're going to miss some of the details. You're not going to get the whole thing, especially with our limited vocabulary. And so there's many things that I saw that I didn't understand. So in January... Um, I was had some time because I was ill and trying to recover, and I decided that I was going to try to find out how these compared to scriptures to make sense of them and try to find some peace in my mind. And that's when we began to converse and decided, you know, Sean, maybe we ought to share this more with other people and and things like this. So as I read through this and study them out in my mind. I'm brought back to the memory of different scenes and go, oh, yeah, this makes sense. Isaiah saw this or and talked about it or other prophets saw this. And I was given it all to, I call, be a rescuer to help other people who are losing faith, hope, and courage because that was my pleading as I asked the Savior to, that I could come back to earth was that I might lift those and provide faith, hope, and courage to those that were lacking in it. And I know that I will have to go into some very dark places to save some people, to bring them back, to get righteous people and protection and everything. So I need to be prepared in this way to see all the scenes, to not be afraid to go in the dark corners and the dark alleys and the dark scenes. What this, made you, I, in, in trying to 
acquire a greater understanding of the things that you saw of all the scriptures that we have, what made you focus on Isaiah? I had spent 2018 trying to do some of the same, and I was lost. I mean, I've done a lot of work in the book of Revelations, but it didn't answer all the questions that I had. And I had read Isaiah many times, and I don't know how many times, and then read different translations, and it just didn't quite feel right to me on some things. Some things weren't explained the way that I saw them, and so I did this deeper study and uh, to find my own meaning. And uh, I start the day in doing this by going into a separate room, locking myself in there, and I eat a little bit in the morning. I fast all day long until nighttime, and I pray and study in this room. I make it my little holy of holies, if you will, where I'm not disturbed, so I can completely focus on this and pray about things when I get stuck. Thank you for sharing that information. Uh, I want to say this. What I find, and I want to say this to as a as a challenge or something to consider, those of you listening. I know there are people who just want to look at the scriptures only, and there's nothing else God can reveal. Uh, although the scriptures is a compilation of what God has revealed over time. And he never said he wouldn't give more information or more knowledge. Quite the opposite. James 1.5 says, if we lack wisdom, we're supposed to ask of God. He'll give us liberally and not upbraid or put down anybody for asking. It'll be given to us. Jesus said to ask, seek, and knock. And certainly if I'd had a near-death experience, which I'm not praying for, mm -hmm. uh, I'd rather just... Um, believe in faith because i know there's a lot of terrible things that people can see and i'm not sure that i need to see those things i want to be able to believe uh without having to see i want to be not like doubting thomas and i'm comfortable with uh believing others but here's what i want to th so people don't like maybe near-death experiences um, i find that like you're saying people who have and see images they're they're i don't know the word is obsessed but they're preoccupied with trying to make sense of all of it and so this journey begins they don't have all the answers they've seen so much they try and put it in words understanding but i think it's great you're going to the scriptures to try and get that and i'm sure you've been led by the spirit to do that but what what i wanted to say was this what i find fascinating and why i'm so uh drawn to these to these accounts is because there are many accounts that have been written over decades now 20 30 years some longer and there's a consistency between these accounts that is as you would say by the mouth of two or three witnesses all things will be established i mean as i mentioned before one of the first times i ever even heard about a, such a thing as a near-death experience was uh, when I came across the account of Heber Q. Hales when I was a missionary, a copy of a copy of a copy, so faded, but it was amazing. And then I found Dwayne Crowther's book, Life Everlasting, which had accounts of people crossing over the veil and the beautiful things they saw. So there were these beautiful accounts of how beautiful heaven was. They came back to talk about it. Then I saw this book by 
Dr. Raymond Moody about life after life or life after yeah. death, I guess, excuse me. And that got a lot of attention. I think that was the early 80s. But then suddenly, you know, there was Betty Eady, Embraced by the Light. There was Daniel Brinkley, Saved by the Light. All these books, quote unquote, by the light. There were there were a number of them. I only read a couple. And I went and heard Betty Eady speak when she came to our town. And I was fascinated by her insight. Then these other books come out, right? Through the Window of Life by Suzanne Friedman. Freeman. I'm holding these books in my hand right now as I look at the titles. There Is No Death by Sarah Linnell Manette, who, by the way, just passed away. And then a book that I got in the early 80s that had the account of Charles D. Evans and his night vision about the future. And then there's the questionable, and I'm going to say less questionable for me now, is the White Horse Prophecy, which two men who knew Joseph said they wrote down the parts they were agreeable to what he said, and the church has not embraced that. It's not a, an official scriptural account, but guess what? It fits with all of the other accounts, uh, many, many parallels. So I look at all these things, and I meet this uh, Jane that we talked to on the program, and then I, I now I meet Sean, and everything... There are major themes that are entirely consistent with one another. And I don't know how much evidence you need to be persuaded that people are seeing things. And there were also, there's been non-members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who have talked about seeing things. And and there was a lot of talk about that during that Mayan calendar deal in 2012, was that? Uh, when the calendar, the calendar was coming to yeah. an end, that cycle more people talking about their experiences around the turn of the the millennium when it turned to 2000 there were other programs and people talking about what they saw so many parallels the hopi prophecies well, which we'll talk about sometime uh talking about these things go ahead sean well so many of the scenes are i can't even tell my wife about or things because they're so troubling i mean i when I finally saw the movie about Nostradamus's life, I like, oh man, I so understand him because there were terrible things that he saw that he that tormented him. And that's a lot of the push of what I've come to. These scriptures are providing me with faith, hope, and courage because I can now understand what I saw and it not so troubling to me. And I want to bring an understanding to others to not be afraid of Isaiah or push it away. You know, I, would, I don't want you to overlook Visions of Glory because that was a tremendous book. And the fire, the next one after that is the fire and millennial story after Visions of Glory that's come out. A really big book. <laughs> but uh, Also additional interviews with uh, Spencer that are yeah. looking at Denim. Oh, I didn't know about that one. I'll have to look that one up. Well, actually, Pontius had his own experiences in addition to Spencer's experiences and he kind of combined them as a second book and it's a very dark book in many ways because the situations that the people are put in in which they're tested to see if they will stand with christ or not and but some people will be tested that way really hard to see if they truly will stand with christ in the well, long run i think there has to be a reason why so many people are having these experiences 
and why and why the Lord is allowing them to talk at this time. Because I think you went many years before you have talked about this publicly, correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, I I tried to talk to some people back in the late 70s, early 80s when I first had it, and they wouldn't have any of it, and I felt so alone and so abandoned. And then Heavenly Father, who just wouldn't let me speak about things until just this last year or so to go more in depth, and I was so grateful that I could share some things to help them and let the let people actually pray about them and find out for themselves where do i fit in where what am i supposed to do during this time well i know i was doing podcasts without you just by myself and i had an impression i needed to help you get the word out so that's yeah. why we've devoted so much time and kind of shifted the emphasis of where i was going with things because i felt impressed to uh, maybe provide some assistance even though we have a relatively small audience it's not going to be that way forever people are starving for information starving for some understanding of what these chapters mean the savior has emphasized we need to understand isaiah well after isaiah was alive he emphasized it with the people in the land of bountiful post-resurrection when he met with them and went through the, some of the chapters in Isaiah, and thankfully they were recorded for our benefit, there's not any better person to provide commentary than the Savior. And right. he provides beautiful commentary in Third Nephi uh, chapters 18, 19, 20, 21, as I recall, but for sure 20 and 21 are some of the highlights. And they all are interpreting the last days using the words of Isaiah. So these are not only for his period uh, and i want to mention that when i do the graphic for these podcasts i've had a prophet writing like isaiah might have done and i i did a new a new uh, illustration which is uh isaiah reading a newspaper i'll put that on this podcast because i think it you know fits that he's really looking at the modern modern times and warning us about now using the events of the past. Isaiah is interesting because here we've got 66 chapters, and they basically cover about seven to eight years period of time. So as we get this broader overlook, then he'll start coming in, and he'll look at just certain scenes like a one-month period of time or a two-month period of time or things. So he starts out very broad and then comes down to very specific things to look for um it's quite an interesting situation and i hope to one day that we can go into the book of revelations and interlace that back once we finish this or even into parts of daniel because they also hold many secrets but i've found we have to have this foundation in a way of isaiah in order to interlace to the other things so the savior said that Isaiah touches on all things concerning the house of Israel. Yeah. So just think about how far and wide the house of Israel is spread, gives you some idea of the breadth and the importance of the book of Isaiah. So it seems like covenants and promised land go together. And when the covenants are broken, the land is no longer protected. And there's warnings that go up. And if they're not heeded, then there are judgments, including enslavement, including invasion. These are things to be concerned about. 
I mentioned again this morning that it's not recorded now, so I'm going to mention it again, but I would encourage you to go uh, listen and watch interviews with economists and what they say about our economy in the United States. Peter Schiff was interviewed this last week, I believe. This is, at least is when I heard it. I think it is a recent interview uh, with jo Dr. Jordan Peterson, and he describes our country, and it's very bleak. Uh, and I don't know if we are understanding what's going on, but he paints with broad strokes, <clears throat> and he also gets specific. Excuse me one second. <clears throat> uh, back in the uh, post, right after World War II, we became a very productive nation. Manufacturing, almost everything was made in America. Electronics and everything. And of course, also the innovation in computers, computer technology, manufacturing. And we were a creditor nation, which means we were extending credit to other countries. And over a period of many years, that has completely flipped around. We are now a debtor nation, which means that we are borrowing money from other countries. And in fact, we've become so indebted that we owe more money than all the country's debts combined owe other people. And this has weakened our position. This has weakened people's interest in holding dollars. We're seeing these alliances, Sean, that are being referred to in Isaiah 7, between China, between China and Russia, <clears throat> between China and Africa. Yeah. We see people trying to break away. I don't know that the Chinese yen is any more reliable, but if somebody comes up with a gold-backed currency, it's going to blow our currency out of the water because you can't take your dollars down anymore and, and cash them in for gold like you could until 1971. Right. So it's just a piece of paper with a promise behind it, but there's no cap, there's no um, gold, there's nothing to back it except the full faith and credit of the United States. But we're not a creditor nation anymore; we're a debtor nation. So it's real, it's a real problem, and it's setting us up for bankruptcy. And uh, as I again was talking about this morning, I can understand invasion by foreign countries, especially if. Our country is viewed as the collateral on which they we have borrowed money from them. I can see justification for that in their in their minds and hearts. Uh, I wanted to ask you, Sean, or mention mention one more thing, and then I want to ask you a couple of questions. So, <clears throat> executive orders is an extremely powerful tool that is, has been used by presidents of the United States for many years. And the use of executive orders accelerated during the Roosevelt administration. He used it freely and he used it a lot. Uh, he's the one who's done the most, but he's also was the one who was in office the longest as a president until they limited terms to two, to two terms or only a max of eight years. But you mentioned Obama using executive actions, or I think you mean executive orders. Right. Uh, but so did... Clinton, so did Bush, so did Reagan. So what was it about Obama's executive orders that he has led to what you said is a loss of control well, uh, test, to our government? 
they tested them against the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court upheld many things which allowed them to go further than they've ever gone before. And the, the biggest problem is that we're bypassing Congress and bypassing the people in the things that um, the president can do. We're taking us out of the equation and allowing them to take control. Um, hopefully, we won't have our Supreme Court weakened further than it is and their decisions. We're seeing a strong hand there, but we're losing control as a people of our representation in government and what we stand for. One of the um, things one of the things that uh, Peter Schiff says is that government leaders they lie. They're all liars. And he says they have to lie because they can't tell the truth because the truth is too hard to bear. And the area in which we're seeing the most lies right now is about inflation. What causes inflation? Inflation is the inflating of the money supply. It's not caused because of demand. It's caused primarily because of printing more dollars. They have an unlimited printing press. And that's what causes when the money supply grows, the, the value of each piece of paper goes down and you have to have more to do more. And it is the most indirect form of taxation we have. That's why all the prices are rising up because the money's becoming worthless or worth, worth less. Um, Congress, you mentioned Congress. I, I agree, except that I think that a lot of the loss of power by Congress is done with their um, tacit approval, turning a blind eye. Why do I say that? Because again, Peter Schiff points out, if if you're a politician, that's your career, and you want to stay in it as long as you can. And to get reelected, you have to give things away. People give things away for free. Once you give more, you can't get them back. And the problem is, is that Congress doesn't want to be held accountable for the tough decisions. Because if yeah. they make unpopular decisions, like hey, we gotta we gotta cut spending, we gotta stop doing this. Well, what happens? People don't people don't want limited government. They want to be taken care of by government. That's the mentality that we've come to now. And so if they don't get stuff, they don't say stay out of our lives, they say, give me stuff. And so they feel compelled to do it. And so I think that Congress has shifted power to the executive branch and to the the judicial branch. So I just explained why they do it for the executive branch. They don't have to take responsibility. They just put it off on unelected officials, and they're happy to do it. What about the judicial, the the, just, the justice or judicial uh, branch of government? Well, I can tell you this because this is uh, my wheelhouse. And what happens is the laws that they write are extremely broad and vague. And they don't want to take responsibility for writing specific laws with specific things because most of those guys are lawyers. They know how to write a good contract. They know how to write a good law. But what they'd rather do is write a law that is broad and subject to interpretation. And then they give it to the courts to make the ruling. And the courts, of course, in the federal bench, they're appointed they're appointed for life. You can't get rid of them, except through a very difficult process, which is never used. In state governments, some states, they are elected officials. And so you can get rid of those people. That has Each one has its own problems. But think of this 
of this uh, problem. You you write laws that are vague, and then or you you write them that are overboard, right. and then you expect or at, to please the public, and then you hope that the government might you know knock those laws down. The 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 judges will knock it down, or you hope that they'll interpret it in the broadest possible way. And so mm -hmm. this this is kind of the game that's being played right now. All of it boils down to the Congress isn't doing their job. Right. Because they want to stay in office. The executive branch, well, they're going to, again, try to do, do the most they can to get votes. Same with Congress. And the, ju and the judiciary gets appointed because they're going to affirm a lot of these decisions, in my opinion, by the legislatures. And they'll once in a while overturn things when they see, I mean, so I think some of them are principled, but if you look at the over years and years of our jurisprudence, we'll see that a lot of the things the government wants to do get rubber stamped by right. uh, these judges. And it becomes this, this uh, difficult maze to go through instead of being checks and balances. It's just, continues to grow and as as peter schiff pointed out government uh uh things take longer and cost more when government's in charge capitalism uh does things faster for less money and so it's a it's an opposite system but when they well, collude it becomes even worse and the including and uh, the bartering between them to make laws and do, you know, unjust deals is being exposed more than ever. Today, we just found out that the ATF has wrongly classified many of their job positions and they've overcharged or overbilled $20 million for employees because of wrongful classifications. And it's through these whistleblowers and the darkness, the secrets coming out that were made in darkness that are being exposed. Um, I don't think anybody's safe if you've made secrets in darkness, unless you've forgiven and uh, tried to work through the atonement. And at this point in this time. So let me ask you this question. When you I, I want people to understand what you're saying and not misinterpret. When you say God would remove Biden if people pray enough daily. You're not suggesting, um, I don't want anybody to misinterpret what that means. Would you explain that, please? Well, I think that's a natural disaster in which that could happen. I mean, we've seen, can't think of specific examples in the scriptures right now, but um, I think, wasn't there one in Daniel where the God just took him out because he was unrighteous in, in chapter seven or chapter eight um, with King Darius during the time of King Darius, you know, in his hand and things like that. But what I'm trying to say is that um, there will be a way or something if enough people rise up. Some people have seen it as a lightning strike and things other people prophesy. I'm just saying that um, somehow, some way, there will be enough strength or power that will remove him. Maybe it'll be an impeachment. Maybe right. it'll be lightning. Maybe it'll be um, finding that there's so much corruption that he should be taken out, which would be an impeachment and things like that. Well, look at King Saul. King Saul just kind of went nuts. I mean, he yeah. just became mentally unstable and couldn't function. We have a constitutional provision 
to remove such people. And if I were a betting person, uh, I I would think that if the, if it were the Lord's will, um, if that's really what it is, then uh, that kind of a, a thing could occur where they're just not fit for office anymore, and therefore they need to be replaced with someone. And I think what you're saying is the Lord will for a time give us someone, hopefully that's more uh, in tune with preserving our country, encouraging righteous practices, then these crazy things we hear coming from this administration, which even uh, Democrats who voted for him are increasingly um, concerned about. So it's a bipartisan concern right now. We see hints in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 6 and 7 about what's going to happen, but we get a lot more detail later on with the hints from Isaiah. Um, it's just a, so much in store, but we have to understand and get through the layers of his overviews and getting down to more detail and more detail and more detail and understand how that all intertwines together. So, um, this, this concept of invasion is uncomfortable, but unfortunately, all these books talk about the, all these near-death experiences talk about there being an invasion um again i'm i'm sometime we'll have to go through the white horse prophecy but i'm going to say it in a way i think it's said best among all the books that i've read that see invasions coming from visions of glory to charles d evans i don't know if actually he talks about it but suzanne freeman does as well as uh the late sarah sarah manette but what he says, and I can, I don't have the book here, but I can pretty much quote it. Uh, Joseph said, allegedly said, unless great care is given, the country shall be invaded by the heathen Chinese. But where there is no law, there is no sin, and this will apply to them. Now, the way, I t and, and I, this has been around for over 100 years. I don't know if anybody ever thought that inv the chi invading Chinese is even, was even a a real possibility they were a very poor country even until we began to trade with them and allow them into the what's it called the whatever the world trade organization is wto um that's when they began to um pull their people out of poverty and do some amazing things and and we uh let our jobs go to china the manufacturing jobs the coal plants, everything was, a lot of it was transferred over there. And they, of course, they've diversified with other nations, not just us anymore. And then they've also been on the receiving end of a lot of uh, stolen technology that yeah. they've made weapons that not even we make anymore, that we are capable of making that they make, like the neutron bomb and and other sophisticated things. My, uh, I've had people tell me that since the Clinton administration the number of secret projects and and how to build things has been uh, has been uh, has compromised our security in this country. I read an article today about how they're gearing up, making even more things, and I think they predict. And uh, Joe Joe Skousen has said that they'll be ready to go uh, to to overcome the West by 2027 and maybe sooner. Uh, I have. 
so many people approach me and say, we are the chosen land. We are a righteous people. We are this. And um, I say, yes, we once were, but we also have more light and knowledge, just like the Nephites did. And they were held to a higher standard. And even though we don't think we're as wicked as the Chinese or the Russians and those things, we have more light and knowledge. We have further to fall. Mm -hmm. And um, so we're going to be actually later on in Isaiah, he says those with more light and knowledge will be tested doubly twice over everybody else to see if they really will hold true to their principles and things. And when you step back and you start to look at who funds the child sex trafficking, who funds the prostitution, and everything, 90, more than 95% of all the money for child sex trafficking around the world comes from the United States. And that's one of the most horrific things in God's eyes is to take away the innocence and the future of the little one and take away their agency and put them into bondage like this. And uh, we just can't see. We look at this broad overview and we don't see the undermining evil that's going on. There are, there are so many good people all over the world, including the United States, that I've met. Uh, but there's this other part that's going on that is extremely bad. And we need to call everybody to repentance, uh, starting with ourselves, to avoid these things. Because you're right. I think it's Doctrine and Covenants, Section 82, where much is given, much is required. And he who sinneth against the greater light receiveth the greater condemnation. So right. it, it wouldn't. It's not so far fetched to say that we could be invaded by a country with less light and knowledge, like the Chinese and the Russians. Um, right. And the headlines just in the last couple of days have been mind blowing. Uh, that are leading us closer and closer to what these people talked about. 15, 20, 30 years ago about um, nuclear weapons being utilized, uh, missiles, um, invasion. When I look back at the talks of uh, David O. McKay, President Kimball, Benson, all of them, and many times my wife and I will comment, oh my gosh, if we had listened to their words and taken action at that time, we would not be in the same state that we're in now. But we took their words lightly, and we didn't act upon them as strongly as we should have in those days. We we took that word lightly. It's, um... The uh, other thing I want to say, and again, folks, we're going through a couple of dark chapters, Isaiah 7, yeah. Isaiah 8, but we're going to get on the other side of this in two more podcasts this one and, and eight and then we'll get to nine but the fear and and what these people describe is that besides the invasions we're going to see and and the way it's described by more than one author is that we have natural disasters in our country we have earthquakes massive earthquakes we have volcanic activity in places where there was Former activity and new activity, famines, pestilence, disease, some of it man-made, man-created. And then we have people who are allegedly coming over to help us. 
And when they see us in our weakened condition, then that's when invasions begin to occur. That's one version of, or one or two versions of what happens. But um, as Sean pointed out, there are people gathering. Sean, you talked about three gatherings to me earlier today. Would you describe what you see? Yeah, we're in the first gathering right now of these seven years of tribulation. And we're being people are being motivated by what they're seeing in Democrat-led cities and so forth, where crime is high, Chicago, New York, California, Illinois. Um, they're moving to Republican-led things because they're finding more peace. And this is just the natural way of God combining the people and condensing them down to where we have more like-minded people. People are moving away from people they don't find comfortable living with in situations where they feel comfortable, and they're moving to people where they feel more comfortable. Now, the second gathering is at the midpoint where the servant stands up and he, the Lord announces, this is my servant and follow him. He is the one set aside to prepare the way for my son to come. And he gathers the righteous and brings them into what I call inner valleys because they're protected by mountains all around them. And from Canada to Arizona that I've seen in this country, and they gather like-mindedness, and they begin to practice Christ-like principles. In fact, they be at a certain point actually sign on and say, I will follow these principles of treating each other like Christ would, you know, this kind of a shorthand version of it. But we get tested to see if we really will live and act like a Zion-type city. And then when we're prepared, then the third gathering occurs. And that third gathering is when we go to New Jerusalem and start building the new temple and gather there. But uh, so there's these steps all along the way. In fact, you can find many parallels to Moses in the desert. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing is like with Moses, um, they didn't think they could make it. They, they live, go across the water, they get on the other side, and they're like, oh, crud, all we took was what we had in our arms. What are we now going to do? There's no water here. There's no food here. And uh, all of a sudden, they have quails. They have manna. They have Moses puts down his staff, and there's water. They actually complain in one part when you're in second estrus, and the Lord sweetens the water and falls tree where they didn't have uh, any wood and things for fires and stuff that he's like, the Lord's <laughs> so interesting in there. You complained and you wanted this and I gave you this and you're still complaining and you're still turning against me and turning against the laws and the commandments. And what more can I do for you, you know, to turn your hearts back to me and so forth. Um, that was in, I think, chapter six that we covered too, that a very scenario where He's like, how far do I push you? Because all you do is rebel. So it's this difficult position he's in, trying to encourage us through various means, progressively more difficult to get through. But he, all he's trying to do is get us to, you know, repent so we can return back to him again. There's some interesting numbers because we all think that as Moses came out of Israel, that all the Israelites followed with him. And that's not the case. If you go back into Jewish literature and everything, only one-third decided to follow Moses. Only one-third had enough faith. The rest stayed there and intermarried into the Egyptians and so forth. So we see a large portion of the house of Israel in Africa and so forth. But 
you know, we can look even closer. When Brigham Young left, only a third left with Brigham Young. And it's interesting because the distance that Brigham Young took the saints to Salt Lake was the same distance that Moses took the Israelites from Egypt to Israel. Hmm. And how far will it be from the gathering areas back to New Jerusalem? The same distance as it traveled that Moses did from Egypt to Israel. It's why, I don't know, but it's interesting to see these numbers. Well, the evidence is unmistakable. There is a first gathering right now. People are leaving cities. They're leaving, I think, uh, California for the first time has a net uh, number of people leaving as opposed to entering. Yeah. That's a big shift. People are going to Utah. They're going to states where there are cheaper, less expensive housing. They're going to Texas. They're going to Florida, uh, pretty much the red states. I don't know how many are going into blue states anymore. Uh Large other, influxes in Idaho and Montana, huge influx. The other uh, part of this equation that we see in these near-death experiences and the future is there's there's just no law enforcement. Right. We're, again, we're already seeing since the George Floyd uh, death, we're already seeing that by cutting back on the police force, cutting back on their abilities to... Uh, keep people in jail and the leniency that's being uh, pushed and supported by softer prosecutors. And then now we have the revolving door of just of uh, criminal justice where they're in and out. As soon as they're arrested, they're take, put back on the streets that there's no fear of, re of retribution for breaking the law. And this is just a natural separation of people that the Lord's planning on. I mean, People are separating themselves from one another because of these things. This is so much like what we see in the Book of Mormon with the Gadianton robbers, right? People yeah. in gangs organizing, and the only way they only means they have is to prey upon other people. And when there's no other people to prey on, they wouldn't survive. But as long as people stay around, they can continue to do this. Uh, you mentioned something this morning about the attacks on banks, right? How much that's going on, trying yeah. to figure out ways to steal people's money electronically. It's the people I know of in that industry are just have worked day and night to the point that they just flat give up because they just so worn out from fighting on people trying to steal money electronically back and forth and throw up their hands and walk away. <laughs> Well, I know what to do. Let's just have a one-world coin, and let's uh, <laughs> use biometric data and get the mark, and then we don't have to worry about that anymore, do we? Well, it's so interesting to me because the plant, we've got a couple different factions. I always joke with my kids, well, we got Pinky and the Brain, and they're trying to figure out how to conquer the world, and they always keep failing and failing over again. And many times the pattern of what we're seeing with uh Oh, open society or the UN and what they're trying to do versus, uh, you know, maybe what the BRICS countries are trying to do. If they're so close to what Heavenly Father wants, but yet they're so far. 
I mean, yeah, Christ brings the whole world under one realm, and we all live together happily, and we're all trying to help one another to grow and mature. I mean, it's always an upward pull. But if you get in these other societies, we have an upper level, and they they stay at this upper level, and the rest of us stay on this bottom level, and there is no growth in between. And that's the difference in Christ's plan is that there's always this growth level and pulling each other up so you can become like the next person above you. And that person's helping another person. Another person is this constant ladder effect where these other systems, they're a set thing and you don't move. Hmm. Sean, I'd like to thank you and thank the Lord for helping you understand Isaiah chapter 7 in a way that I never understood it before and uh touching on these themes that address our day-to-day we'll cover isaiah 8 next i'm not sure when that will be maybe we'll be able to knock it out sunday we're trying to aggressively uh finish isaiah we have a long ways to go (laughs) but we're uh as fast as sean can prepare to discuss these things in light of his near-death experience and his uh, preparation will continue to go through the book of Isaiah and hopefully give you some additional tools and insights that will assist you. I can't wait to get to chapter nine. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be beautiful. All right. This has been Vision of Zion. Thanks for listening. <laughs>